going to open our Bibles in just a moment, and we are in a, a short series dedicated to teaching you the simple things that the Bible says you can do to know God. So let's pray together and ask His blessing on teaching and listening and obeying God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I am honored, blessed, just super happy to open the Bible again with my church family. In this week that's passed, Lord, some of us have lived through great joys and mountaintop kind of experiences, and others have been hurt and afraid and wondered if you were there to listen. Thank you, Lord, that in all circumstances, you are always there. You are unchanging. Your promises actually are true. And I pray now, Lord, as the disciples once asked you, Jesus, that you would teach us to pray. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll need your Bible, please. And as soon as you get settled and have a Bible in front of you, if you didn't bring one with you, that's perfectly all right. There should be one in the chairs around you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take the, the Bible you find home with you. Put your name in it. That one's yours. Bring it with you Sunday by Sunday so that we can read the Bible together. Folks, this service is full of people and the parking lot is even more full of cars. Uh, thank you for being patient and working through the process of getting from the parking lot into this building. I'd just like to remind you we also have two other services on either side of this one. You're welcome to this one, but if it suits your schedule and the traffic is too annoying, let me invite you to join the early bird crew at 8 a.m. or the we'll go straight to lunch from here crew at 11 a.m. There is no shame, there is no guilt, there is no trapdoor, there is no aha in the survey that follows. I'd just like to invite your participation. Knowing that I'm already standing, so I'm not going to stand up because I'm already, already answering yes by standing the questions I'm about to ask you, okay? If you'll indulge me, if you can, would you stand as I mention a few things that you may have already been able to do this morning? If you have made or received a phone call this morning, would you please stand? One person, three. Nobody calls anymore. What about text messages? How many of you have used your text message feature? Aha, there you are. What about email? Anybody been on email or some other messaging device? You can remain standing. Anybody been on email yet? I have. What about social media? Have you been on social media yet this morning? All right. I just want you to look around. Like 5% of the congregation is still seated. Thank you very much. What's the point of all that? Well, before I walked up here during the first service, I realized in the middle of singing the last song that I had not silenced my smartwatch. So if you were in the first service and you were paying attention to me, you would have seen me frantically fumbling with my left wrist trying to get the thing silent because one of the more embarrassing things that can happen to a preacher is have his own sermon interrupted by whatever is going on through phone calls, through text messages, through social media, through ads, through political campaigns, and all the things that come flooding in. It's only 9.56 in the morning. 
Presumably you had an extra hour of sleep this weekend. And already, the vast majority of our congregation has already electronically engaged with other people. What's the point? God has a lot of competition in getting our attention. Apps, email, phone calls, text messages, they all clamor for our attention. I checked my email, and there's no good reason for me to check my email on Sunday morning. There's certainly not a good reason to check it at 6 in the morning. Why did I do that? I did it for the same reason. Maybe some of you do it. I just did it out of habit. I felt the phone in my pocket. It kind of nestled around it. The whole thing is designed for you to use it, beginning with hardware, continuing with software. All the interaction is carefully designed by people smarter than us to keep you engaged. And we have to learn to manage that. And the reality is, if we're going to achieve the purpose of this series, which is to teach you just a few basic things that a child can read in the Bible and immediately understand and even put into practice, some things will have to change. You've heard that old saying attributed to Albert Einstein, right, that the definition of insanity is to do the same things expecting a different result? Here's a simple truth. For things to change, things have to change. You will not know better God, you will not know God any better this time next year unless you make some changes and you consciously, purposefully do the things that God has taught you. Last week, I talked to you about Bible reading. We explored a little bit of Psalm 119. We even put Bible reading into practice where I invited you to sit there and read your Bible and reflect on it. We're going to do the same thing this morning in prayer I'm going to teach you a few simple things that, again, a child can understand and immediately put into practice, and then I'm going to break a cardinal rule of preaching, and I'm going to stop preaching, and I'm going to ask you to practice. Why is that a cardinal rule? Because if you stop, you lose people's attention. You lose momentum. They'll get back into their phones. They'll start passing notes about where are we eating? When do you think he's going to be done? Holy smokes, we get it, dude. Move on. I get it. Let's go. We're going to make several purposeful pauses as we walk through the Lord's Prayer together. And my invitation to you is going to be very specific. Just for about a minute, I'm going to ask you to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. Because I discovered a danger in this sermon. It would be the silliest thing in the world to spend as much time as I'm going to spend talking about prayer and not praying. Not much will change if you go to a prayer seminar or read a book about prayer or spend hours letting the YouTube algorithm feed you things about prayer that you can listen to while you work and while you walk, none of that learning, none of that knowledge, true as it may be, life-changing as its appeal and intelligence and depth may appear to be, none of it will make any difference unless you actually pray. So the target for this teaching, for this time together and this service, this Sunday, is really, really simple. I'm trying to motivate in myself and in you as individuals, as families, and as a family of faith called a congregation, prayer. I want your prayer habits to 
improve starting today. I specifically would invite you to pray twice a day, to at least begin your day with prayer and wrap up your day with prayer, to give God your burdens, your anxieties, your needs, your plans in the morning, and then at the end of the day, give Him the burdens and rejoice over Him with thanksgiving over the things that He blessed you with and He answered you with during the day. What is prayer exactly? Well, I like Tim Keller's definition. This isn't Scripture, but it does summarize and contain a great deal of scriptural teaching. Pastor Tim Keller, who's now with the Lord, said this, prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through His Word and His grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with Him. We don't need to study this the way we might study a Bible verse, but it's worth reflecting on the words He chose. He seems to have been a man of real and deep and life-changing prayer, so we can learn from our brother. Prayer, he said, is continuing a conversation that God has started. One of the most humbling things in the Bible is this. If you know God, it's because God chose to reveal Himself to you. With God, the Bible tells us all the way through from its early pages until the end. If there is a personal, loving, knowledgeable relationship with God, there is only one reason, because God started that relationship. We seek Him because He first sought us. The Bible is explicit. If we can say that we love God, it's because He first, what? You know the rest of this? He first loved us. If we know Him, it's because He first knew us. If we speak to Him in prayer, it's because He first took the initiative to make us, to give us, according to the Bible, a creatureliness made, the Bible says in this wonderful little phrase, made in His image. That has a lot of depth to it, but it, le it means at least this, that as a human being, you have the capacity to relate to God and engage in a personal relationship with Him. That's why Keller said prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started. How did He start it? He started it through His Word. God spoke the world into existence. He stopped and He made human beings. Then He gave us Scripture so that you don't have to wonder who God is and what God said. That Bible that you're holding, physically speaking, is just a collection of ink on paper, but it contains the very words and ideas of God. The truth of who God is and what God knows and what God wants is all found in the word that He put in writing so that you don't have to wonder and guess and make things up. Prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through His word and His grace. Yes, it's His loving grace that started all of this. And Keller says, if you persist in prayer that eventually becomes a full encounter with Him. Some Christians, I hope all, but at least some Christians can testify to an experience in prayer and reading their Bible so that when that brief time is over, they know for certain that they have met with God. They know that God has spoken to them. They know that through prayer they have talked back to Him. Please don't lose sight of this. It's one of the most underrated and undertaught things in all the Bible, perhaps because it's so obvious. God is a person. 
I don't mean that he's a human being in the way that you are a human being. No, Jesus said God is spirit. The Bible reports that God is eternal and uncreated. God just is. There are no past, present, and future with him. He just is. He is the great truth, the starting fact for everything else. But he's a person, and he's personal. That means that he has mind. He has a will. He's capable of emotions and plans and purposes. He relates to people. That means that when you sit down with your Bible and you bow your head in prayer, whether it's one of those conscious, down on my knees, by my bedside, actually seeking after God, and I've got quiet and I've got time, or it's just that desperate prayer that somebody calls like an arrow shot up to heaven in the middle of a difficult meeting, please God help me keep my mouth shut. Help me be wise. Don't let me say what I'm thinking. Take control of my thoughts. All of those things described in the Bible, by the way, you can see those in instruction and you can see those by example. You're in relationship with a person. God is your father, Jesus insists. Jesus, the Bible says, is actually your brother in the family of God because the father has brought you in by adoption. Jesus is kind and generous enough to call you his friend. You're not his equal. He's your big brother. He's a greater and better and truer friend than you will find in anyone else. The Holy Spirit himself is also a person, not merely an energy. So when you search God in Scripture and you speak to God in prayer, you're one person dealing with another person. One temporal, weak, frail person who is wonderfully made and beautifully loved, made in God's image. One person seeking, talking, praying, listening, struggling after another. All of that happens if you pray, but only if you pray. A second question is this, what is the basis of our prayers? We pray because God is our loving Father, Jesus is our loving mediator, and the Holy Spirit lovingly dwells in us. Here I'm compressing a lot of Bible teaching, but you're allowed to speak to God and actually told to speak to God and encouraged to speak to God because God loves you and wants to hear from you. You can know that you can stand with full confidence in God's presence, not as His equal, but as His beloved child, because Jesus has gone ahead of you and made peace with the Father and opened up literally the throne room of heaven to you. Jesus stands beside you, and the Holy Spirit lives within you. And notice in all of these things, what makes this possible and what made this start is the love of God. It's the love of God that makes him your father. It's the love of God that has the son come and die in your place. It's the love of the Holy Spirit that comes according to Ephesians 1.13 and chapter 4 verse 30 to come and indwell you and seal you and make you God's own, to mark you not as just one more person, but someone specially loved and acceptable to God, not in your own right, but because Jesus died for your sins and rose to give you eternal life. It's love that drives prayer. Listen to Jesus teach it. Open your Bibles with me in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. Jesus is on his way to the cross. 
He's with his nearest disciples. Even they will soon betray him, but he takes those final few hours to teach them. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice, it's all love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of, what is the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of what? Of truth. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be, what's it say? In you. Notice this is a personal relationship and not everybody has it. There are people in the world who know nothing about what Jesus is speaking. Why? Because they do not believe Him. Personal relationships begin when there is trust and love on both sides. God loves and trusts first. He sacrifices first to establish relationship with you when you humbly accept His Word and humble yourself before Him and trust Him and love Him as He first loved you. A personal relationship was born, and Jesus said, notice, we're in deep waters here, and I won't spend long long here, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all mentioned in these few verses, all bound together by love and God's insistent desire and plan to have a relationship with little old you, little old me. Look in the next chapter, John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, Jesus said, There's God initiating, God acting first, God moving first with grace and love. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Let's stop there for just a second. Jesus says that we did not make the first move toward Him. No, first He chose us. And He did more than that with the people who were following. He not only chose them, He appointed them. And He appointed them specifically for a purpose, that we would go and bear fruit, and that that fruit should abide, that that fruit should remain, that that fruit should endure. What's He talking about? It's a word picture. And this is part of a much longer and beautiful teaching But what Jesus is saying is that He has moved first toward us and chosen us and loved us and done things for us so that our lives would produce fruit, the fruit of His own life. Now, specifically, what that means in the life of a genuine Christian, if you really are following Jesus and not merely using His name, it's easy to use His name. Many Christians in this country are Christians in the demographic sense. Meaning, if somebody asks them what religion they favor, they say Christian, not Muslim or Hindu or Hindu or anything else. That's only demographics. They may have only a vague idea of what that means, and they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus is talking about something real between him and his disciples. He chose them. He appointed them, and He appointed them specifically so that as they continued their lives, their lives would bear fruit. 
What does that practically mean? That means that the first sign of a Christian is that a Christian increasingly looks more and more like Christ. If you really are His disciple, you'll begin to resemble Him. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, when a disciple is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. We see that everywhere else. If you're into sports, you can tell by whether it's what they call a coaching tree or specific players that some people have influenced others just by the way they play the game. Where did he learn that? He learned that from somebody else. So it is with Jesus. It shows up first in your character, and then as that fruit begins to really express itself, it's a beautiful word picture of a life that shows up, that is real, that is practical, that is visible, that is nourishing to other people. That fruit is also going to go beyond mere personal transformation. It's actually going to go out and begin to affect other people. And Jesus said that fruit, which will be produced by Him, by His life, is going to abide. And may I suggest to you that all the things that the world is offering us here in coastal Orange County are not going to abide? That it's going to be gone just like that? In fact, you can drive around Orange County and see spots that just a few years ago were the cool spots. Nobody goes there anymore. That's trend, that trend is gone. If you get on that trend now, you're out of step, old man. It's really, really funny to see fashions that I embraced so wholeheartedly when I was 17 years old, to see people in their early 20s dressing like I did when I was a kid. Amazing. What happened? It wasn't a good idea when we were doing it. I don't think it's a good idea now. But go on with your bad self and be as trendy as you possibly can. Just know it's not going to last. Nothing this world offers lasts. It all stays here in this world. It all blows to dust eventually. Listen to Jesus. I appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Don't miss the next phrase. It's huge so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. I'm a little embarrassed to tell you that I have not gotten to the bottom of this verse. I tried, and I couldn't get there. I've been reading and studying the Gospel of John, and particularly John 15, over and over for a long, long time. There's depths here that I can't begin to explain to you, but I think at least some of what Jesus means is this, as you go out and live the life that I died to give you, when you pray to bear the fruit of my life that I appointed you to bear in the first place, you can talk to your father about anything in my name and he'll do it. Of course. I explained to somebody on the parking lot, if you're raising young children and you want those kids to be good students, and all the kids want are notebooks and pen and paper and a quiet place to study, would you provide it? If you're a good father, if you're a father that wants his kids to do well in school, of course you will provide it. You will gladly provide those things. It will delight you to give your children those things. Praying in Jesus' name does not merely mean to tack His name on the end of a request of whatever you want. It's to follow Jesus, 
to have his life begin to show up in your life and change your life so that you look more and more like him. And as you join him and the good work that he is doing, that he started and that he's now choosing to do through you, as you speak to your father about the things you need as you follow him, of course you will have them. You can pray with confidence knowing that your heavenly father already knows what you need and he'll gladly give it. That's the basis of prayer. It's love and it's intended for you to live and produce the life that Jesus died on the cross to give you. Here's the practical question. How can you pray so that you will know God? How can you move beyond a religious drudgery or a laundry list of things you think you want? First, two things simply. Embrace prayer. Pursue prayer. Embrace it. First as a duty then as a discipline. And if you do that long enough, it will eventually to you become a delight. As you mature spiritually, you will move from experiencing prayer as a duty to enjoying prayer as a personal delight. Let me explain. This happened for both of my boys, but particularly for one of my boys. He was an extremely bookish grade schooler. But I knew there was an athlete in there. And not because I had big dreams for him, but because I remember how much I enjoyed sports. I wanted him to branch out a little bit when he was a little kid and try his hand at various sports and physical activities just to see if some joy would spark in him because I thought it would. So I started doing hard things with him that would just push him a little bit beyond his boundaries so that eventually he could walk away from those exercises, from those competitions, and have a sense of fulfillment, have a sense of accomplishment. That all started for him as a duty. We did it because I told him we had to. We once ran up a skyscraper together because I signed us up. He wasn't super pleased about it. His his mother was even less pleased about that, but we got to the top of the skyscraper and the smile on his face knowing that he had run up 75 floors, that was reward enough. It started as a duty, and as he began to enjoy it, it became for him a discipline. And God moved in his life and provided him some coaches, particularly a couple coaches in the weight room, one of which said, you have a pencil neck, but we're going to fix that. He didn't know what that meant. He knew it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't expressed as a compliment, and he got to work in the weight room. Can I tell you now that that young, grown man enjoys all of those things, lifting heavy and running hard, not as a discipline, but primarily as a delight? And he says things like, I don't feel right. I haven't lifted in two days. You haven't lifted in two days? I haven't lifted in three months. That, that, we've moved in different directions, you and I. What happened? He began something as an obligation. He enjoyed it enough to become disciplined and committed to it, and then joy took over. The same thing will happen to you if you begin to pray. Even if you take it first as your duty, you'll begin to enjoy it. I promise you will if you stick with it long enough. Then you'll realize the goodness of it. You'll realize why your heavenly Father wanted to pray for you, how much it means to God, and how much it will mean to you. And you will embrace that as a life-giving discipline. And eventually, if you keep going with it as a discipline, 
It'll just be joy. You'll experience it most days as a delight. If you want to pray, you know the best way to learn how to pray? Just pray. Here's what John Laidlaw said. The main lesson about prayer is just this. Do it. Do it. You want to be taught to pray? My answer is to pray and never faint, and then you shall never fail. Nike had a brilliant, brilliant ad campaign several decades ago. They moved from something that was favored by a very specific kind of high-level athlete in difficult sports to becoming a worldwide phenomenon embraced by just about everybody who ever did anything as ambitious as walk to the grocery store, and they did it with three simple words. Do you remember what they are? Just do it. They invited everybody into the joy of exercise and physical movement. The same thing is true with you. If you go home and say, I learned something in that prayer. I never thought about that. That's a great verse. But you don't pray, this has been a complete failure and waste of your time. We have to pray. Listen to Paul move through these three seasons. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he said, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul here is writing to a young pastor leading a growing church that is having conflict and has trouble inside and outside of it. And he said, the first thing I want you to do is pray. I want you to intercede. I want you to pray for people in high positions. That's a good word. If Christians spent more time praying than we do complaining about people in high positions, we may yet see God do something. It begins as a matter of priority, as a matter of first importance, as something that comes not as an emergency recourse, but as a first good step. We begin with prayer. That's duty. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 says this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. All of those words practically speak to me about discipline. Prayer is to be done steadfastly with loyalty, with faithfulness, with dedication. You have to be watchful in it. What does that mean? Well, there's a real temptation in prayer to go to sleep both physically and spiritually, to just mouth words, to speak to God and not really know what you said because it's become so habitual that you're not really anymore in the presence of another person consciously. Paul says, no, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Of course with thanksgiving. If you understand that when you say heavenly Father... You're speaking a true word that you have a Father in heaven who made the whole universe and has chosen to love you. And a great theologian of centuries ago says he loves each of us as if there were only one of us. That he relates to you as a good father does, as his individual child, and it does not matter to him that he has many others, he delights in you. 
I know the word father is upsetting for a lot of people because you may have had a neglectful father or an absent father or a cruel father or maybe even an abusive father. Your heart hurt when you experienced that from your earthly dad because you instinctively knew how wrong it was. Your heavenly father is everything that no earthly father is perfectly. The things that were missing in your earthly father are all beautifully present in your heavenly father. He's perfect. So, of course, if you keep talking to him, you're going to abound in thanks. That's discipline. What does delight sound like? It sounds like this. Psalm 16, verse 11. Read it with me. The Bible says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Take that in just a second. When you're in a personal relationship with God, He personally makes known to you the path of life. Avoiding death. Avoiding tragedy. Avoiding throwing your life away. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let me ask you, do you want pleasures forevermore? Isn't that what every stupid ad is trying to sell us? If you can just get this, if you can just have that, if you can buy this, if you can earn that, then you'll have pleasure forever. No, the glow, la the glow lasts about three days. And then they come out with something else. And they say, hey, that's old news. This right here, this is what you come here, come here. See this? Real pleasure, real joy. No. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you just have to go to your father and you have to stay there until you begin to enjoy him. He promises that you will. Now here's where we're going to get practical. And I'm going to break a rule of preaching. I'm going to teach you something very simply from the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to tell you what the phrases of the Lord's Prayer means, and then I'm going to invite you to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. It'll be quiet in here, in other words. You won't have my voice rocketing over you anymore. You'll have time to speak to your Heavenly Father. Some of you will find it joyful and immediately get into it. For others, it'll be difficult. For those who have been conditioned, as all of our brains have, to constant distraction and entertainment, you may find it difficult to keep returning your attention to your Heavenly Father. But let me tell you, if you try to pray for 10 minutes and end up in those 10 minutes discovering that your mind drifts, but you catch it, and because you love Him and want to pay attention to Him, you put your thoughts back on Him, that will be the best 10 minutes you spend all day. You will have sought God, and God will be pleased, and God will bless you. What we're going to do, number two, is use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern. Look with me in Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites... For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's a promise. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Here's why. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Here's how Jesus taught us to pray, phrase by phrase, if you're keeping notes. Our Father in heaven. What does that mean? If you understand the fatherhood of God, the real pattern, the real model, the true and best and first father, you understand that when you call God your father, there's a lot of good there for you. It means belonging. You're in God's family. He's not merely a king and a creator to you. He is your actual father. You belong in His family. It means that you're loved. It means because God is strong and good that you're secure. It means that you are confident as well because you do not merely approach Him as one more servant. You're not just an employee. You're not a soldier under authority. You are His own child. So you speak to Him with the confidence that only a child can have when He speaks to the Father He knows loves Him. But don't miss sight of it. In all of His goodness, He remains always in authority over you, and that's good because He knows what's best for you. Every commandment He gives you has both protection and blessing in it. You are dearly loved by Him, loved to the cost of the, of the life of His own Son, Jesus, but don't make a mistake thinking your peers. You're not. He's your Father, and He will always be in authority over you. Our Father in heaven, Jesus taught us to pray hallowed be your name. Now, that's old English. What does it mean? It means for, that we are praying for God's name to be treated as holy as we become holy ourselves. Not as we're self-righteous, no. As we are changed by His love, because we've been forgiven by His grace, we rest in His love, we follow Him like little children who don't know what to do, but know that their Father does, and we follow Him and we trust Him. And as we begin to experience His love, we increasingly obey Him and we become like Him. If you've been a Christian for 20 years, but don't look more like Jesus today than you did 20 years ago, please check the reality of your faith and your relationship with God. Jesus taught the disciples that they had a Father in heaven, and that the first priority was that they themselves and the people around them would treat God as He is, actually holy. So that's where we're going to pause and pray. You may want to focus on the fatherliness of God. Thank Him that He's your Father. If you're not entirely sure that He is and He's forgiven your sins and given you the life of God Himself, you may want to ask Him for it. But pray right now as Jesus taught you to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'll give you a moment and then I'll pray aloud and we will keep moving forward. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your favorite way to explain yourself to us is in the image and the reality of a Father who knows everything, including what we need. 
and as wise, loving fathers always do, have moved ahead of us to set in motion and to provide the things that we truly need. Forgive us, Lord, when we treat you as less than holy, when our actions are less than reflect the goodness of your own name. Teach us to pray, Lord, and to rest in the fact that you are a holy, holy God, but by your grace and love, you call yourself our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus also taught us to pray, your kingdom come. What does that mean? Well, following, one way of understanding following Jesus is that the war between the kingdom of God and your little empire never stops until you surrender to Him. Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God, and what many people, including some Christians, are busy doing is building their little empires instead. When we pray to the Father, your kingdom come, what we're praying is for God to take charge of our lives. God, come in and wreck my little kingdom. Set my priorities in order. I know that I'm not doing everything right. I know that some of my motivations are selfish and craven. I know I'm wasting some parts of my life. I'm just not entirely sure how. Show me how. May your kingdom come. It also means that we're looking beyond ourselves and we're praying, I think, for God to bring an end to sin, to injustice, to evil. Have you seen any sin and evil in the news right lately? It's everywhere. I'm only vaguely acquainted with what's happening in the world because I discovered it doesn't do me much good. I read headlines for about two minutes a day just to make sure that the world's still here. And then I move on. I've got more than enough in reading the headlines to know where sin is reigning, where evil is terrorizing people, where injustice is being done. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying to God to bring an end to all that as He someday will. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God, may you be perfectly obeyed in practical daily life the way you are perfectly obeyed in heaven right now. The prayer there, I think, is for us to obey God gladly and to accept His will over our own. That's huge. If you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had a very specific request of the Father, but the ultimate and best prayer lesson perhaps He taught us was this, but not my will be done, but your will be done. I know what I want, but what I want more than that is for your will to be done. So, in these two phrases, these two things that Jesus taught us to pray, that He would rule over us, that His values would overtake ours, that we would obey Him gladly, and even when it's painful, that we would accept His will as our own. Pray to the Father, as Jesus taught you. Lord, whether it's our cities, our county, our state, the country, or the world, 
We're grieved by injustice in all kinds of places. Thank you that someday your kingdom will fully come and your will will be perfectly done. Help us, Lord, to seek your kingdom first, to stop disobeying you, to stop acting as other people do out of mere cultural habit or inertia. We pray, Lord, for your kingdom come and for your will to be done first in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And this is where many people spend most of their prayer time, <laughs> praying for the things that they need. And there's no shame there. I just want you to notice that that's on the list. That matters to God. There is no shame. You are specifically and lovingly instructed to bring your daily needs. Bread here stands in for everything that you actually need in this earthly life. You're told to bring it to God, and how often should you bring it? Daily. I wish sometimes it said weekly. I'd breathe a little easier if it were provided monthly. No, God wants you close. Like a good dad, God wants to hear from His kids. There's no shame in bringing Him the list. Make a list. Bring it to Him with confidence. He's your heavenly Father that loves you. But notice, this is on the list, but it comes in the middle of the prayer, not at the beginning. First, you reorient yourself to God. Then you begin to think of your daily needs and for your earthly needs to be provided. Jesus also taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. As you spend time in the presence of a holy God, He'll bring your sins to mind. He'll quicken your memory and prod your conscience and guide you through the Holy Spirit to remember how you've disobeyed Him. So you ask for His forgiveness even as you assure Him that you will forgive the people who wrong you. We pray here to confess. We pray to be forgiven and we remember that forgiven people forgive people. Finally, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. That is a prayer for godly wisdom and guidance. As the prayer comes to an end, and you rise from your encounter with God, and you rejoin the world and all of its temptations, you remind yourself and God that you'll need His wisdom and guidance to not enter into temptation. And Jesus taught us to pray at the end, but deliver us from evil. You'll need His spiritual guidance and protection as you move forward. So this is our final time in prayer. That's a lot there. You may only want to focus on one of those things. If you're aware of things that are between you and God, you may ask His forgiveness. If you have pressing needs that are breaking your heart and weighing you down, you may want to ask Him for your daily bread. If you're in a tough spot and you need His wisdom to please Him, you may ask Him for His guidance. Let's pray the way Jesus taught us. Father, you've provided so much, and it's so generous of you to tell us to speak to you every day about our, daily, about our daily needs. Certainly, we need your forgiveness day by day, hour by hour. 
Help us forgive others the way you first forgave us. Keep us wise. Keep us holy. Keep us walking with you. Deliver us from the reality of evil in this world that we may please you and bear the fruit, Jesus, that you appointed us to bear. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the end of the sermon. There's some resources there, things you can read. I recommend journaling. It'll spark your prayer life. But reading and writing, no substitute for praying. The main goal and the entire proof of whether you've actually heard from God this morning through this teaching is whether you will pray. Here's a final encouragement for you, Cross Point. God loves you. Keep the conversation with Him going day and night. Before you go to sleep tonight, reflect back on this day. Give Him thanks for the good things He's given you. Ask for His provision in the new day He's about to give you. And walk with your God. That's how you know Him, through prayer. Let's pray together. Jesus, teach us to pray in such a way that we actually would. Thank you, Lord, for prayer flourishing around this church. Thank you for our young adults ministry that are in a 21-day focus on prayer. Keep them diligent in it. Let them love you and know you better after 21 days of focused prayer than they did when they began. Do that for all of us. And Jesus, we pray that you would make us prayerful and that when we gather again a week from today in this service and in our small groups and ministries throughout the week, we would have good things to say about you because we have met with you. I pray that in Jesus' name. And my church family says, amen. amen.